All glory be to Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Washera Community Church. My name is Tim. If you are visiting this morning or are fairly new around here, we welcome you. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are glad you're here. Washera Community Church is a group of gathered Christians who give, who exist to give creative and meaningful worship to God and to discover and develop disciples of Jesus Christ. We strive to love God and love others fervently. Some announcements for you today. First of all, next Sunday, August 20th, is the last Sunday to collect shipping fees and school curriculum donations for Liberia. So be aware of that. So if you want to do a donation there, next Sunday is it. Um, Today after the service, uh, please join us for baptism outside in the yard. I'm not sure which end, probably out on this end. Thank you, Pastor Adam. And then also after the service is a short Liberia missions trip informational meeting. That's downstairs, room 112 in the lower level there, um, downstairs. So, um, And after that, if you don't want to make lunch today, stay here because we will have food for you. We have our last community days of the summer today. Food, bouncy house kids, bouncy house today, and snow cones. All right. So come, please, and stay. And if you're an adult who likes bouncy houses and snow cones, you stay too. And finally, uh, check the bulletin, okay, for information on our week of prayer coming up at the end of the month, along with another pavilion praise on August 27th, two weeks from today, another pavilion praise. We have a scripture reading this morning from Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10. Um, If you'd rise with me, we'll uh, do the scripture this morning. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, this morning. Thank you for the incredible, beautiful weather we have had. Thank you for this gathered group um, here in in this church this morning. Father, I pray that your presence would be among us, that you would give uh, Scott Kingston, the, the, the words that we need to hear this morning, that the Holy Spirit would move in each of our hearts, and that we wouldn't leave here better than, or that we would leave here, Father, better than what we came in as. Um, We love you. We thank you so much for all you do uh, each and every day for every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody, well, we just want to have, we're thankful that every once in a while, thank you, every once in a while we have an opportunity for one of our elders to speak. God's laid something on their heart, and they get an opportunity to speak to us as the body. And so we're thankful for Scott being in that role this morning, but we're going to lay hands on him in Heavenly Father. Thank you for the opportunity for uh, Niall and myself to flank Scott and just be in prayer for him this morning as he opens up the Word of God. Uh, Open up our ears and our minds to hear from you. I pray that you'll give Scott clarity as he brings forth your Word. In thy precious and holy name, amen. 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 Thank you. Thanks grab your Bible and grab your bulletin. <clears throat> Write down some notes. All right. Thanks, Adam and Niall, for opening us in prayer. Good morning. <clears throat> Today I will, be, I will be talking about idolatry within the context of the temptation of Christ. As we study authentic worship this month, we also need to look at its opposite which is idolatry. I do have a couple things to ask of you before we get started. First, I want to ask that you listen with an open mind and a humble heart. You might be offended by some of what I say today. If you are, please try to discern why. If it's due to a mishandling of scripture on my part, then you definitely have a right to be offended. If it isn't, then what might the Holy Spirit be trying to tell you? Second, I want to get us all on equal footing. Who here has a heart? All right, good. If you, didn't, I, if you didn't raise your hand, I urge you to seek immediate medical attention. 
Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. So who here has a deceitful heart? I do. Okay, that's not so good. It has been said that the human heart is an idle factory. John Calvin wrote that every one of us is, from birth, expert in inventing idols. If he is right, every person here struggles with idolatry and has an enormous capacity for self-deceit with regard to idols. I know that I do. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we truly worship God, we are satisfied and he is glorified. As humans, we were created to worship. It's why we exist, and therefore we will always be worshiping something. The question is, in our fallen state, will we worship God or will we worship idols? I would argue that idolatry is both the most dangerous and the most hidden sin that we commit as Christians. I'll say it again. Every single person in this room is prone to or actively engaged in idolatry. Throughout my life, I have struggled and continue to struggle with idols like money, career, and reputation. And that's by no means an exhaustive list. Solomon, the wisest man in scripture, was idolatrous. And his political and sexual idolatry played a huge part in the kingdom of of Israel being torn apart. If the wisest man who ever lived struggled with idolatry, should we think we're immune to it? Idolatry is what exiles humanity from the garden, led to the construction of the Tower of Babel, caused God's presence to leave the temple, exiled God's people from Israel, and can exile from us, us from life in Christ's kingdom, in ki- kingdom. The first two of the Ten Commandments deal directly with idolatry. Jesus' greatest commandment speaks against it. In Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3 and Ezekiel chapter 16, God uses some of the most graphic language in the Bible to equate political alliances with ungodly kingdoms is worse than prostitution. God literally sees it as committing adultery against him. I believe idolatry is the biggest threat to the church today. As the Gospels and Epistles attest, the worst kind of idolatry is that which cloaks itself in religiosity. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, said, Idolatry occurs when the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment, if we attain them. An idol is whatever you look at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then, I know I, then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. There are cultural idols, such as military power, technical, technological process, and progress, and economic prosperity. The idols of traditional societies include family, hard work, duty, and moral virtue, while those of Western cultures are individual freedom, self-discovery, personal affluence, and fulfillment. All these good things can and do take on disproportionate size and power within a society. They promise us safety, peace, and happiness, if only we base our lives on them. I would argue that the ultimate end in, cre- in worshiping of created things is self-worship. It is attempting it to make God into our own image. It is the will to have power and control over our lives and even of those around us. Before we get to the temptation of Christ, I'm going to take a quick detour back to the temptation in the garden. In their interaction with the serpent, Adam and Eve failed to trust God. The fruit and the wisdom they thought it would provide were more important than the God who gave them everything. That's idolatry. After eating the fruit, they begin to define good and evil for themselves. Shame, hiding, blame, envy, murder, and vengeance enter the world. The curse is declared. All of creation groans. But as God foretold immediately after the fall, Eve's seed would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus came to reverse the curse to bring us back to the garden. Jesus in our scripture today shows us the way out of idolatry. Let's set the scene. Jesus has just started his public ministry. He was baptized by John, 
heaven was opened. The Spirit of God descended him on, on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That takes us to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Although I'll be referring to many other scripture passages today, those who are following in their Bibles can remain here until the end of the sermon. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. After 40 days without food, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. In these temptations, the devil was trying to get Jesus to take control, to not trust the Father's plan, and to take matters into his own hands. I will discuss this further, but it is important to note from the start that Jesus' every defense against the deception of Satan was truth, God's word, the sword of the Spirit. Satan is ultimately trying to get Jesus to turn from God and towards self, to look away from the all-sufficient Yahweh for provision, to use worldly means to achieve his mission to put his well-being, his security, and his personal power before his love and obedience to the Father. Satan tempts us in the same way today. Let's go through each of the temptations and focus on how Jesus responds, because the responses show us how we can fight idolatry. Temptation one, stones into bread. I believe this is idolatry of sustenance and provision. Jesus fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. Studies show that people who have voluntarily stopped eating to participate in hunger strikes have died after 45 to 61 days. Without food, the body starts to use its own tissue as fuel, effectively eating itself alive. Jesus is literally starving to death. Satan starts with something that on the surface is seemingly insignificant, but it is the thing that Jesus needs to survive physically, what his fully man body is desperately longing for. Jesus starving is not willing to abandon his mission to satiate what, had been, what must have been incredibly painful hunger. Satan tempts Jesus with sustenance outside of God's intended provision. Food is, need, is a need, but God is the ultimate need. As Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 4, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus had put himself entirely in God's hands, and was not willing to go outside of his good plan. God the Father was Jesus' sustainer and provider, and his submission to his Father's will was his ultimate food. An example of this type of idolatry in Scripture is the multiple occasions in the book of Exodus, where Israel, although they had the very presence of God, continuously grumbled that they were better off in Egypt because they, have pl they had plenty of food there. There are many ways we can seek ultimate sustenance and provision outside of God. Once we have it, our fallen hearts want more because the true sustenance and fulfillment never comes. We are still hungry. Idol, idols in this category are things that God's, God provides, but that we turn into something that we think, if we attain it, will make life worthy, worth living. If you're starving, food would be an obvious idol, but others could be a spouse, children, grandchildren, money, houses, cars, beauty, athleticism, achievement, acclaim, competence, romance, or peer approval. Even a successful ministry or your interpretation of scripture can be idols. In John chapter 5 verses 39 through 40, Jesus said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess, possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
He said this to religious people who were eagerly awaiting Messiah. But when Messiah came, he didn't fit into their pre preconceived notions of what Messiah should be. And they killed him for it. Temptation two, throw yourself down. Satan then tempts Jesus with safety and security. When taken to the, their extreme, I believe these temptations lead to comfort and then hedonism. Jesus knows that the cross lies ahead, and Satan is tempting him to avoid the pain, shame, and death that he will undergo to save us. This temptation occurs at God's temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, and Satan tempts Jesus to command the angels to rescue him from his sacrificial fate. Jesus could have commanded the angels to do this at any point in his ministry. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus says at his arrest that he could call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? That's approximately 60,000 angels. That is real power. But Jesus would not short-circuit his mission. A couple things to note about Satan's temptation here. It contains an element of truth. He quotes directly from Psalm 91. However, he leaves out part of the scripture. Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 actually states, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in, your, in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Why would Satan leaving, leave out to guard you in all your ways? He was tempting Jesus to avoid the hard road of suffering and death, but perhaps he also wanted Jesus to ignore that God would ultimately guard him in his way of suffering and death. Are we not tempted to believe when we are enduring great suffering that God's favor has left us, that he does not care or that he is not good? Jesus on the cross proves to the world that God does care about us in our suffering. God does guard us in all our ways, even perhaps especially when we are on the road of suffering and loss. He never promised temporal safety or security, but he did promise he would be with us always. A couple scriptural examples of this idolatry for you from perhaps the two greatest kings in Israel's history. In 2 Samuel 24, David asked Joab, the commander of his forces, to take a census of all his fighting, man, fighting men. Even Joab, Joab, who wasn't the most stand-up guy, says, why does my lord, the king, want to do such a thing? The count takes almost 10 months, after which David finds out that he has 1.3 million able fighting men. He becomes conscience-stricken at the sin he has committed and begs forgiveness. Why was the simple counting of the, his men a sin? Because it reflected pride and a lack of dependence on God. David placed his security in his military capabilities rather than God. This led to a plague on the land which the Lord in his mercy cut short. David's son Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Just pause to think about that for a minute. <laughs> he married many foreign women, some of them in political treaties, from nations which the Lord had commanded the Israelites not to marry because their hearts would be turned towards other gods. Solomon, wise beyond measure but not obedient, fell into idolatry. Within one generation, the kingdom was split in two. Jeroboam, the king in the north, set up two golden calves for political reasons. The idolatry gets worse from there, leading to the conquering and exile of both kingdoms. If you're interested in getting a snapshot of the sad narrative, read 1 Kings chapter, chapters 11 through 16. What can idols in this category of safety and security and comfort look like? Health, wellness prosperity, constitutional rights, guns, entertainment, sex, alcohol, the screen in my pocket that happens to be a grave with a piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it. Most of these things aren't bad in and of themselves, but there is a great risk of them becoming idols. What about carrying guns into the church gathering? The Second Amendment in state law gives us that option. I'm not going to say we can't or we shouldn't, but I am saying we need to consider the reasons we might do this. Why would we come to worship the Lord who willingly died for us with a gun? Perhaps it stems from a good desire to protect others, but are we willing to die as martyrs for our Lord Jesus? There's one scene recorded in all of scripture 
where a Christ follower commits a violent act against another human. And it occurs before the death and resurrection of Christ. It's Peter cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant at Jesus' arrest. I'm sure many of us can empathize with Peter. Part of me even hopes that I would have that same courage to defend Jesus like he did. However, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then healed the wound of a man who came to arrest him. The torture and crucifixion of Christ is followed by Stephen being martyred and numerous accounts of the stoning and beating of other disciples. Not once do Jesus or Paul or Peter or John tell Christ's followers to fight back. I'm not interpreting, I'm just stating facts. And when it comes to our physical security as Christians, we can have all the guns and all the security systems in the world, but our safety is completely dependent on God. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells of a time when Christians will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. When God removes his hand of temporal protection, we will be powerless to stop it, but even martyrdom is a part of his good plan. Just a personal aside here, our family served as missionaries in Guatemala, which is not the safest, safest country. We constantly worried about the safety of our children. Before we left, my wife wouldn't even write even let them ride down the street without a helmet on their heads. One day, Carrie expressed these concerns to a Christian mentor, a Guatemalan who had lived through some of the violence there. Her only reassurance to Carrie was that whatever happened, we needed to remember that God loves our children far more than we do. We carry the truth of that reassurance with us to, the, to this day. As Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Temptation three, bow down and worship. I'm going to spend a lot of time here in temptation three because it gets to the root of idolatry. The will to power and control is the ultimate idolatry. Satan, now desperate, offers to share his power. He's offering Jesus to sit at his right hand rather than going the way of the cross so he can sit at the Father's. There's an element of truth and a lie to this temptation. Satan has been given authority in ways that I can't understand. In John 12, 31, Jesus calls him the prince of this world. In the epistles, he is referred to as the God of the sage and the prince of the power of the air. Satan has authority, but he is not sovereign. Yahweh has sovereignty over every single aspect of creation. Satan understands that his own power is limited. He also understands that the nature of his power and God's power are of two different kinds. Satan's power can be recognized because it is based on domination and coercion, and it always corrupts the heart and intentions of those who wield it. Maybe not at first, but ultimately, it always corrupts. God's kingdom power is creative, regenerative, sustaining, and redeeming. When you look at creation and even judgment, you will see these qualities. Satan wields power by setting up systems of coercion and domination. This goes all the way back to the fall. God has judged the power of Satan in these systems and will ultimately destroy them. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Maybe he doesn't know how Jesus was going to redeem us, but he knew from way back in the garden that Jesus was coming to redeem and he knew that the rede redemption would lead directly to his defeat. Creative kingdom power leads to flourishing, involves sacrifice, and is motivated by love. Kingdom power is made perfect in our weakness. Coercive worldly power is zero sum, or worse. Coercive power is designed to maintain and grow control. Jesus does have the power. He had it from the beginning but he refuses to use his power in a coercive or dominating manner. Jesus knew that the means the devil offered him were contrary to his very nature. God cannot contradict who he is. The means and ends were the same. Sacrifice, the cross, love. He knew that the cross was his destiny. His face was already set toward Jerusalem. Satan was trying to get Jesus to claim the mantle of God outside of the Trinity. Please hear this. With worldly power, the ends justify the means. With kingdom power, the means and the ends are indistinguishable. 
I think that's one reason our faith is referred to as the way. We follow the way of Jesus and live in kingdom power here on earth on our way to the everlasting kingdom. In choosing scriptural examples of idolatry of power and control, there are almost too many to count. This is such a major theme in the Bible. I'll go over just a couple from the Gospels. In Matthew 16, verses 21 through 27, Jesus tells his disciples that he will suffer and die at the hands of the powers that be, and on the third day raised to life. Peter rebukes him, saying, Never, Lord. Jesus responds, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This exchange clearly shows that Peter, at one time, had a satanic view of the gaining and wielding of power. In Matthew 20, verses 28, James and John, along with their mother, asked Jesus to grant that they would sit at his right and left in the kingdom. This request caused great indignation among the other apostles, showing that all 12 had a warped view at one time of kingdom power. Jesus responds, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is kingdom power. And of course, the story of Good Friday and Easter and all the Gospels provides perhaps the most striking contrast between kingdom power and worldly power. Some examples of the potential for idolatry of power from everyday life. Parenting. Parents have a tremendous amount of power. It's amazing that God trusts the soul of a child to fallen creatures like us. Good parenting involves nurturing, teaching, and grace. Bad parenting involves domination and control. Unfortunately, no parent ever gets this completely right. <clears throat> the same can be said about being a spouse, a coworker, a boss, a friend, a customer at a restaurant. There are power dynamics in all these relationships, and we are always choosing whether we will handle power like Jesus or like Satan. For Christians, Perhaps the most dangerous form of this idolatry is setting aside the way of Jesus to accumulate worldly political power. I believe this represents an existential threat to our Christian witness. Please listen to what I have to say with an open heart. Satan loves to show us a culture sliding into darkness, which it is, and wants us to circumvent the way of Jesus to bring it back to some nostalgic view of a fully Christian culture that never really existed. He is cheered at both the decline of our culture and the worldly power many Christians are currently trusting to prevent the slide, because both are under his dominion. I am not opposed to civic engagement. In fact, I encourage it. But how we engage matters a great deal. Injustice, ungodly actions, and worldly weapons are usually necessary to accumulate and maintain worldly power. A slow and subtle process of corruption occurs with Christians when they place hope and trust in worldly power structures, and the corruption always ends up revealing itself through works of the flesh. As Adam has recently discussed, not just in sexual immorality and debauchery, but also other, in other works of the flesh outlined in Scripture, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. I have often heard Christians make excuses for politicians who not only exhibit this behavior, but encourage it and even revel in it. When we justify bad behavior, we slowly become unfazed by it, and our character is inevitably, inevitably molded by the character of those we support and defend. Like a frog in boiling water, the conscience is slowly seared. Church, the ends never justify the means. If we desire a just, charitable, civil, and flourishing society, then the means must be just, charitable, and civil. Jesus refuses to take shortcuts to the cross, and as his followers, we must as well. Again, for Jesus, the means and the ends are indistinguishable. Christians have been trying to use the world's weapons to fight culture wars in earnest going back to the founding of this country. Yet our culture continues to slip away from God, not just in terms of sexual ethics, but the other works of the flesh I just, I just discussed. 
discord, dissensions, and factions haven't just seeped into the church, but have in some cases become as prevalent as they are in the world outside. And as we point our finger at a culture that we see as sexually depraved, many Christian leaders themselves fall into sexual scandals. In 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul asks, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Why do we judge the world before we judge ourselves? Author Alex Harris states, We as a church must exist to guide people to the real Jesus. A Jesus free of the cultural baggage that has accumulated over time. Church, Jesus is not a tool to win culture wars and take back America. The church is not a worldly political mobilization entity. Christianity is about new birth and heart change. Politics is always about external conformity. Our political engagement must never become a stumbling block to Jesus and the gospel. Do we believe what we say we believe? Do we show a watching world that we believe it? Let's contrast the way of the world with the way of Jesus. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do we believe these words of Jesus? Is he using figurative language? Is the church falling away or getting in the way of the way? Granted, there are a lot of ungodly social justice efforts in the world, but the same impulse that drives our pro-life and pro-family initiatives should push us to lead the charge in welcoming refugees, fighting racism and sexual abuse, and stewarding creation. Isaiah 58, 6-9 shows us the heart of God. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Evangelical theologian Russell Moore recently wrote the following. If people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened, but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? If people leave the church because they want to gratify the flesh with abandon, such has always been the case. But what happens when people leave because they believe the church exists to gratify the flesh? whether in orgies of sex or orgies of anger or orgies of materialism. That's a far different problem. And what if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they have read the Bible and have come to the conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? That's a catastrophe. Honestly, ask yourself, what has the church gained, especially in recent years, as our engagement with political power has gone into hyperdrive? Have things really gotten better in this country? Most importantly, has the name of Jesus been made great? Has our trust in corrupt powers expanded his kingdom of mercy, justice, and grace, which is recognized by the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? What do we decide if the choice is between winning the culture wars and maintaining our Christian witness? In Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, God says to the church in Ephesus, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
The lampstand is a symbol of their existence as Christ's church. Its removal would signify them ceasing to exist as part of the body of Christ. This has happened to many churches throughout history. It can happen to ours. If it does, we become just another human institution drained of all supernatural kingdom power. The stakes couldn't be higher, but Jesus shows us the way out. One, recognize idolatry and repent. As I've said, we are often blinded to idolatry. Last week, Adam said that unrecognized and unrepentant sin leads to complaining. I would add to that anger. As James 1.21 states, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Some might say, but didn't Jesus get angry and flip tables? Yes, but he flipped tables in the temple, not the public square. He was angry because his people were crowding the court of Gentiles with commerce, effectively keeping people from the living God. In the Gospels, Jesus usually reserves his visible anger for the religious leaders and his disciples, particularly when they misrepresent God and keep the lost out of the kingdom. Are you angry at people, especially those outside of the kingdom? That is a symptom that something is wrong. Pray that God would help you identify the idol. Find your idols and repent. Return to pure worship of your good and loving Father, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. This is a lifelong project. Luther's first thesis reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. I believe that Christian conversion isn't just a transaction to forgive your sins. It is the entering of a new life of daily repentance and fellowship with Jesus. Two, put on the whole armor of God. Pray and remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. This is what Jesus did when he was tempted. The armor has nothing to do with the weapons of the world. The armor consists of the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Three, be immersed in scripture. It is the sword of the spirit. Every response of Jesus to the devil's temptations comes directly from Scripture, specifically Deuteronomy chapters 6 and 8. Jesus picked up the sword of the Spirit, and the devil left him. This book is a miracle. It is the primary means through which the Holy Spirit speaks to us. If you inhabit it, it will change you. The Holy Spirit will not speak to you through Fox News, Newsmax, CNN, news radio, or any other media outlet. He will speak to you through scripture, prayer, and fellowship with other believers. If you are listening to talking heads every day but not reading scripture every day, that is a clear indication that you have an idol in your life. Worldly voices are enchanting us into anger and the pursuit of a counterfeit illusion of power. Quite honestly, it's how they make money. It's time to become disenchanted and disillusioned with our idols. The enchantment wearing off is a good thing. Illusions aren't real. Losing an illusion is a good thing. False gods are cruel gods. They always take more than they give. The death of an idol is an act of grace. Four, be on mission. Why do we exist as a church? What is our mission? Jesus made this very simple and very clear, and it can be found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples and disciple them with scripture. Be salt, be light, be an ambassador of Jesus. You are to put making the name of Jesus great before anything else in your life. If you are a Christian, your allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his kingdom before any country, political party, or politician. Live as an exile in this world. Engage with the lost world like he did. Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38 says this about Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field.
The worship team is going to come up and close the sermon and the service and song. This song is called Clear the Stage. I encourage you to prayerfully ponder the words. Ask God to allow you to see where you are either prone to or actively engaged in idolatry. Quiet your heart so that you can hear God whisper. Confess and repent. You are dismissed after the song. If you would like to stay and pray by yourself or with others, I encourage you to do so. While they are getting ready, I'm going to close with Paul's prayer and exhortation from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14, 4 through 6. If you have your Bibles, please turn there now. As I read, focus on the incredible and incomparable gift we've been given. Focus on the clear connection between God and power and love. Why do we want to worship or give our allegiance to counterfeit and corrupt gods? They are passing away. Focus on the eternal and everlasting power, the good and sustaining and restorative power of our good and beautiful God. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Jerk the pews and all the decorations too Until the congregation's few Then have revival And tell your friends that this is where the party ends Until you're broken for your sins Can't be social Then seek the Lord and wait for what he has in store I know that great is your reward, so just be hopeful, cause you can sing all you want to, yes you can, sing all you want to, you can, sing all you want to, and still get it wrong. Worship is more than a song. Take a break from all the plans that you've made and sit at home alone and wait for God to whisper. Beg him please to open up his mouth and speak And pray for real upon your knees until they blister Shine a light in every corner of your life Until the pride and lust and lies are in the open 
So read the word and put to test the things you've heard until your heart and soul are stirred and rocked and broken. Cause you can sing all you want to. Yes, you can sing all you want to. You can sing all you want to still get it wrong. Worship is more than a song. We must now worship something that's not even worth it. Clear the stage and make some space for the one who deserves it. And anything I put before my God is an idol. And anything I want with all my heart is an idol. And anything I can stop thinking of is an idol. Anything I give, all my love is an idol. Cause I can sing all I want to. Yes, I can sing all I want to. And we can sing all we want to. Still get it wrong, and you can sing all you want to. Yes, you can sing all you want to. You can sing all you want to. Still get it wrong, cause worship. Is more than a song. Clear the stage and set the sound lights ablaze. If that's the measure you must take to crush the idols. As Scott said this morning, there's there's a tremendous amount of good that we have in our life. <clears throat> but sometimes that good can cross the line. And you have to you have to recognize that. And so anytime that a good in my life has crossed the line into being becoming an idol, it's because I have stopped trusting God's way and what God has said. And the temptations of Christ bring us right back to that. He doesn't vary from what God has said. And that's what we need to do as children of God. That we, all the good that we have, we have a lot of good in our life. It is just tremendous. But it can so easily creep over the line and become an idol. And when you recognize that, recognize that, wait a minute, I've just diminished my God who has given me salvation. And I do thank Scott for the message this morning. It probably pushed us in many different areas, and hopefully it, it brought up different things in your life, different things that you needed to think about individually. Have I made this, have I made this good? Most likely it's a good into an idol, into an idol. Go back to what he has said. Go back to and trust what God has said, trust him. Now we're going to transition. I'm going to give a closing prayer. We're going to transition 
into being able to walk outside out the front doors here to the left. And there's a young lady here that has given her life over to Jesus Christ. And this, yeah, praise the Lord. And uh, she wants to follow after him. And so she's following in this step of baptism to say, Jesus is my Lord publicly. And uh, let's pray for Brandilyn as she steps forward and goes forth to say, I worship God and him only. I worship God and him only. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the word of God this morning spoken. Uh, thank you for the spirit that um, convicts our hearts in different ways. And uh, Lord, we, we, your, your first commandments are about idolatry. And so, Lord, if we recognize something that is an idol, Lord, may we repent. May, Lord, we run back to the scriptures. And may we put our full trust in you. And help us, Lord, as a church in this crazy world that we live in. It feels crazy. Um, never forget that our message is Jesus. That is the message. It is Jesus. It is salvation. It is people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, just like Brandilyn. And the opportunity to publicly uh, come before her church family and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. We ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. There's the ushers in the back for benevolence and Liberia. So if, you want, if your heart is touched to give that way, feel free to do so.